All right, so at the conclusion of last week with chapter 15, verse 47, uh, Jesus is dead and buried. He's in the ground, or in the cave, I should say, and the Jesus issue has been solved in the minds of the religious and civil authorities. It's done. End of game, story's over. And so Jesus is perceived to be dead, the threat is gone, boo-hoo, time to move on. Or so they thought. The crucifixion of Christ represents the absolute darkest moment in history. Where the Son of God, who had become man in the incarnation, literally experienced the wrath of God as he hung there on a cross. He was judged for you and for me. But then, three days later, we come to what we know as the resurrection of Christ, which, if the cross is the darkest moment in history, the, the resurrection is the brightest. The resurrection of Christ signals the victory of the Son of God. And so Christians throughout the millennia have rightly made the assertion of the resurrection the center of our faith. In fact, there is no single historical fact of our faith that is as crucial as the resurrection. The fact of the resurrection sounds ridiculous to modern ears. Because we are claiming that a dead man rose again. His lifeless body came back alive. That sounds absurd to the modern mind. But we're told that those ancient bumpkins were so ignorant and so superstitious that they passed along this story. We have such historical elitism and arrogance. You see, even back then, people thought the idea of a resurrection was ridiculous. Consider, if you would, Acts 20. Acts 20 shows the story where Paul, he's making his journey and he stops in the city of Athens and he's troubled by all the idols he sees. And so he delivers his famous address where he calls the people of Athens to consider that God is not an idol. And then he gets to the point where God has appointed a day to judge the world in righteousness and he has confirmed this, and, and he says in verse 31, by raising Jesus from the dead. Now for 32 verses, the people of Athens are quiet and they're listening. But verse 32 says this, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, they scoffed. They scoff now. They scoff then. Why? Because dead people don't come back to life. But this central, basic, historical fact, this claim that Christianity makes is essential to what it means to be a Christian. We reject the notion that 
Resurrection from the dead is simply a spiritual metaphor for hope in the midst of defeat. A dead man came back to life. Either it happened or it didn't. If it didn't happen, if Jesus did not come back to life, then our entire religion, our entire faith is a sham. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, the various miracles in the Bible have all been subject to relentless attack. But none so aggressively as the resurrection. Because they, the enemies of the church, understand that if Christ remained in the grave, if, as Dominic Crisson said, that the body of Jesus was most likely eaten by dogs, if that happened, then the entire edifice comes down. Now, two modern classics that I would recommend. Countless, countless men have written great things about the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, But two accessible, easy-to-read modern classics that I would commend to you if you want to know more. I would commend to you either Josh McDowell's excellent Evidence That Demands a Verdict or Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Both of these will leave you encouraged and strengthened in your faith. And that's what edification is, okay? So if you're a believer in Christ, but you don't quite understand that there's actual evidence to support the claim, both of these books will help you in that. Now, if you are just a hardened atheist, a hardened unbeliever, who just accepts as a basic point of worldview that dead people don't come back to life, well, evidence won't convince you anyway. And the best we can do is pray that God would open your eyes. And that's what we need to pray for those people around us, our friends and our family and our neighbors who just don't believe. Pray for them. Pray. Now, for most Christians, the historical fact of the resurrection isn't debated. I mean, I will be surprised if any, any one of you in here doubts that Jesus rose back to life. Okay? For Christians, it's, it's understood that God is a God who does the impossible. You know, if, if God can create the vast universe with a word, well, well then what's, what's putting life, what's, what is reanimating a body? You know, most of us understand that if a God can do anything, then that literally means anything, and that includes bringing a dead man back to life. So we don't typically, as Christians, get hung up on the fact of the resurrection. But what I do find Christians sometimes struggle with is understanding the significance of the resurrection. Have you ever considered why was it so important that Jesus come back to life? What is the significance of his resurrection? Specifically, what is the relationship between his resurrection and our salvation? If I ask you what has Jesus done for you, and and, and that's a question we we ask uh, potential new members when the session meets and we're interviewing a, a new member, we'll oftentimes ask the question in one form or another, what has Jesus done for you? And you know what most people say? 
He died for my sins. And you want to know what? That's a right answer. That Jesus died for our sins is absolutely essential to our faith. In fact, Charles Spurgeon in the late 1800s wrote that my theology can be boiled down to the four words, Jesus died for me. So saying and affirming that Jesus died for our sins is essential. Do not lose that. Hold on to that because it is precious. But still, did you know that the only reason we can make the assertion, Jesus died for my sins, Jesus died for me, the only reason we can make that assertion and speak it with confidence and hope is because he rose from the grave. The fact of Jesus' resurrection is absolutely essential for understanding his saving work on the cross. This is why in Romans 4.25, after Paul writes about how Abraham had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he speaks about the, the faith in the Son of God. He talks about Jesus who was, in Romans 4.25, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Your justification is what is produced by Jesus and his resurrection. Now, many times we think that Jesus rose from the dead because, you know, he's the Son of God. You can't keep a good man down or something like that. You know, he's Jesus. He does amazing things. So, of course, he's going to come back to life. But his resurrection produced your justification. So, understand this Jesus, when he came back out of that grave, he did so not so much for himself, he did so for you. We think about how Jesus died for us, but did you know that he came back to life for you? That is awesome. There's a popular praise song going around, and it's been recorded by the newsboys, and it's on the radio. And this is Exhibit A as to why you need to be careful about what you sing. The Bible teaches us that we are to teach one another with our songs, okay? So we teach with classes and sermons, but we also teach with songs. But there's this song going around, and it's sung by the newsboys, and generally speaking, I like the newsboys, so it pains me to criticize them. But if I'm going to be honest, I have to do that. And the song is called, The Cross Has the Final Word. If the cross has the final word, then you are damned. Because you know what the cross means? The cross means that the judgment and curse of God rests and abides on Christ. And 
Death has sway over a person so long as the judgment of God needs to be satisfied. So if the cross is the final word, if it's the cross happens, end of story, then you and I are hopeless. That is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 27. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins and those who have fallen asleep in the Lord have perished. If the cross is the final word, then God's judgment and wrath abides. So why is the resurrection so essential? It has to do with the fact of Christ being our representative. Okay, when Jesus went to the cross, the sinless one took on all of our sins, the sins of all his people, and God is a God of justice. We oftentimes ask, why can't God just, you know, turn the other cheek? Why can't God just understand that boys will be boys and, you know, you just got to let things slide or whatever? Because that's not justice. And God is perfectly just. So every violation and infraction of the law must be punished. But in his mercy, he didn't make us endure that. He sent his son. So when Christ hung on that cross, he really, really was on our behalf suffering the judgment of God and the cross was God's judgment of sin. Now because Christ is our representative, the only way we can know, the only way we can be sure that God was pleased, that God accepted as sufficient the sufferings of Christ, are by his declarations of the fact, by raising Christ from the dead to affirm that satisfaction has been paid, the judgment has been satisfied, that everything has been wiped clean. So when Christ rose from the dead, it was God's stamp of approval. Yes, I accept It is God declaring that your sins have been paid in full and he has accepted as satisfactory on your behalf his sufferings. And so God could not justly keep Jesus dead because the penalty was paid. Justice, God's justice demanded that Jesus be brought back to life. And that's where we have our hope. Because the satisfaction for our sins has been paid, The resurrection of Christ assures us who are in him that the debt has been paid for us and so the grave will not hold us forever either. Never, ever, ever forget that Christianity does teach us that our bodies will come out of the ground just as surely as Jesus' did. We will rise again. That is glorious and that is awesome. So, go around saying, Jesus died for me. But remember, you can only say that because Jesus rose for me. His resurrection guarantees God's acceptance of you. Now, everything I just told you comes from the epistles. Right? 
the apostles unpacked Jesus' mission and message. Aided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they unpacked the significance of what Jesus has done for us so that we could have life. But Mark had a different emphasis in mind. Mark is writing to people who are first generation, first, some, some of them are probably second generation believers, and they're experiencing persecution in Rome. And so because Mark's purpose isn't so much to unpack the significance of the resurrection, his, he, he's trying to get faithful followers of Christ to hold on in the midst of persecution. He writes his ending very awkwardly. If you look with me at your copy of the Bible, almost certainly, unless, unless you're using the King James, after verse 8, there's like a bracketed off section in your Bible. And it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. Now that's an understatement. None of the earliest manuscripts contain Mark 16, 9 to 20. In fact, scholars, evangelical, Bible-believing scholars, are almost unanimously of the opinion that Mark's gospel, when Mark penned it and he concluded his gospel, it ended at verse 8. And what happens at the end of verse 8 is jarring. It's like a total cliffhanger. What happens next? And so because of that, the best we can figure is that a later scribe just couldn't live with the tension. And so 19... Uh, six, uh, verses 9 through 20 are basically a hodgepodge of resurrection stories from Matthew, Luke, and John that he sort of compiled and stuck there. Now, why is it in the Bible at all? I mean, try to make this brief. 1540s. The armies of the Muslims are surrounding Constantinople and it's about to fall. All these Greek scholars, because remember Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Empire. The Romans had split their empire in two several hundred years. They flee the Muslim armies and they go into Europe, bringing with them their Greek texts. They're known as the Byzantine texts. They're a family of Greek manuscripts that had been nurtured and kept safe in their little enclave since about the year 400. Okay? So Constantinople falls in the 1550s and, you know, the rest is all that. But in the early 1500s, a great scholar named uh, Erasmus, a Dutch scholar, he decides, I'm going to print a, a, an accurate Greek translation of the New Testament. So he gets his hands on this Byzantine family of texts, these, this group of Greek manuscripts that had come from Constantinople, and he does the best job he can do, and in every single one of those Byzantine texts dating from about the year 400, verses 9 through 20 are in there. So he translates it into his Greek text, and Erasmus's Greek text becomes known as the Textus Receptus. And it serves as the foundation for 
the Geneva Bible, which is the Bible Shakespeare used and the pilgrims used. Uh, specifically, it becomes the Greek text basis for the King James Bible. So the King James translates it. No worries. The King James Bible is so influential that it shapes the English language. To this day, we have ways of speaking that come from the King James Bible. It is still, 400 years in, it is still the number one selling English translation of the Bible. If you don't own one, get one. It is a masterpiece of the English language. Okay, Even us, here we are, we speak, but when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we do? We use the language of the King James Bible. It's that influential. But in the 1880s, thanks to this evil thing, thing that people call evil, thanks to colonialism, the Europeans were in charge of the Middle East. And they did something that the Muslims couldn't care less about, and that is archaeology. And they discovered a whole bunch of early, early Greek manuscripts from all over Alexandria, Caesarea, the, the, the whole Middle East, North. And it gives rise to what's known as the critical text. So that starts in the 1880s. And using the best uh, literary techniques they can, they put together what they believe is the most accurate original Greek text they can, and the critical text has today become the basis for all the other versions of the Bible. And in no copy of the critical text are verses 9 through 20 there. So, this is why scholars agree that the earliest versions of the Bible clearly did not include these passages, this, these verses. So what that means for us then is that Mark left it at verse 8, the question is, why? Why would he leave it so strange? It's weird. It has the women running away. It, mentions, it specifies that they didn't say anything to anybody. And they're running away scared. Why would he end his book that way? Well, it's not the only place in the Bible where the book ends on a cliffhanger. Think of the book of Jonah. You don't know what happens. What's the resolution? What happens? Well, we have a couple good reasons why Mark ends his book this way. Throughout the book, we have been repeatedly painted the picture that the disciples just don't get it. They repeatedly don't understand who Jesus is, what his mission is, and they keep making these boneheaded mistakes. And everybody fails him. Everybody except the women. The women in the Gospel of Mark are always the ones who seem to be most in sync with Jesus. And yet, in the end, we learn that even the women didn't really believe. They came there that day not hoping for a victory procession, they came there expecting a dead body. They came there expecting to finish the burial process and be done with it. And then confronted with what we know is an angel in human form from the other Gospels, they run away afraid. So they too ultimately 
failed. That sounds like a real bummer, but it's not. Here's why. Throughout the whole gospel, you have the promise, the purpose, and the plan of God in action. And yet God's plan is completely wreathed. I love that word. It makes me think of Christmas. It's completely wreathed by human failure. Jesus goes on his mission. He completes his ministry. He's building his kingdom. And he's completely surrounded by the failure of his people. There's hope there for you and me. And it's a word of encouragement. It's not resting on your shoulders. How many of you lie awake at night feeling this weight that it's all on you? And if you don't do it, it just isn't going to happen. Jesus is going to build his kingdom. And he's going to do it even when you fail. And you know what? Your failure just might be part of his plan to bring about the realization of his kingdom. So there's good news. But second, he wants to underscore that in the midst of trouble, our greatest threat is not hardened unbelief. What does Peter in when he is confronted by that lowly servant girl? Is it hardened, jaded, cynical unbelief? No, what is it? It's fear. What is it that do these ladies in? It's fear. Fear is our greatest threat. Fear. But we have not been given a spirit of fear, have we? We're called, hey, you know what? Don't give in to fear. It's only when you give in to fear that you risk doing something that you're going to regret. Hold on. In the face of adversity and difficulty and frustration, don't give in to fear. How many rash decisions do we make because we're afraid? And we think, oh man, we got to make a quick course correction or else we're going to crash. I got to save my neck. And we end up doing something that has consequences. Hold on. Be steady. But lastly, there's a little challenge. And I love how pastoral Mark is in it. He never criticizes the disciples. He never criticizes Peter. He never inserts these editorial comments. They were real failures. He doesn't call these women failures. But as we're reading this book, as we're reading this book, we're sitting there going, come on, guys. Have you ever read a book and you just start yelling at the characters? You start, this is, oh, what are you thinking? Don't do that. That's what we're supposed to do. Come on, Peter, what are you thinking? Judas, you dirty rat, what's up with you? Come on, ladies, you just understood it, you know, a chapter ago. And right there, Mark is acting like a parent. He wants you to be better than he was. He's wanting you to be faced and to cast judgment upon their shortcomings so that we can bolster ourselves, so that when we're in the moment of difficulty, we can hopefully do better than they did. What parent wants their kid to not be better than them? 
I, I don't want to prove something to my children by, uh, by being better than they. I want my kids to excel beyond whatever I've attained. And I'm sure all of you want the same. And as a spiritual father, Mark wants his audience to go beyond what the first hearers did. So don't emulate their shortcomings. Don't be hard of hearing and hard of understanding. Come on, guys. You know what the truth is. You know all this. Come on. But lastly, the ending of verse 8 begs the question, what happens next, doesn't it? Is that the question that's on your mind? As soon as it ends, what, 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 what happens next? Well, like we, the original audience knew what happened next. I mean, they were Christians. They were in a church. They knew what happens next. They know that these women went and their, and their fear was short-lived and they went and told and, 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 and they know all of that. But right here's the challenge for us in this day. They were called to go and tell. What are they going to do next? So the question for us is we have been called to go and tell. We have been given the great commission. We have been given the great commandment. We have been given the great promise. What are we going to do next? It's a cliffhanger because it's trying to elicit from you not so much a concern for what happened to these ladies or what happened to Jesus because we know. The question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to live in fear? Are you going to try to save your neck and social standing by keeping your relationship to Christ on the down low? Or are you going to boldly proclaim the name of Christ, take up your cross and follow him daily, losing your life that you may live? What are you going to do? There's a world desperate to hear the news. What are you going to do? Let's pray.